Well, hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Harbor Teaching Podcast. We hope that the messages you will hear are both uplifting and challenging. And now, welcome to the Harbor. Um, if you guys wouldn't mind, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into uh, what God is speaking to us tonight. So God, thank you so much for this night. Lord, I just truly believe that um, whenever we open your word, it's a special and important thing. And so I ask that you would just speak to us, uh, speak through me tonight, God. We love you. We're thankful for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and uh, one of our crew will bring you a Bible. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. It's going to be an interesting passage of scripture, okay? So we're in our series called Myself the God. And the idea is we are studying through the first 11 chapters of the Bible. The first 11 chapters of the Bible are the first thousand years or so of the history of the world. And kind of the overarching theme of, this, of these chapters is that God created this perfect world and then mankind revolted from God and rebelled against God and pretty much tried to make ourselves God. So that's where we got the title, Myself the God, and that's where we're at. So tonight, I have, I have a title for you and I have a subtitle for you to write down, okay? So if you're taking notes, the title is gonna be this, Names and Nephilim. Names and Nephilim. The reason we're calling it that is because we are diving into a genealogy tonight. If you don't know what a genealogy is, it is a list of names. Like it is a 30 verses of, of names. And so if you're worried about this, don't worry. It's gonna be good, I promise. And then we're also gonna dive into a portion of scripture that's kind of one of the more confusing portions of scripture. So it's gonna be overall an interesting night. Pray for me, okay? But uh, here's the subtitle for you, because it's a list of names, and this will make sense, the subtitle, in a second. This is, uh, the subtitle is this, The Most Interesting Sermon on Methuselah You've Heard All Week. Okay? I promise you that, or your money back, this will be the most interesting sermon about Methuselah that you've heard all week. And since it is kind of a list of names, I was a little worried about it, so I was like, you know what? I'm gonna ask Peyton to be up here. She's gonna play a little music because everything sounds a little better with music. And so as we're reading our genealogy, she's gonna play some lovely harmonious tones behind it. If you ever preach, just to let you know, you're gonna find out that your preaching's not as good. And then when the music starts, you're like, you know what? My preaching's a lot better. And so that's why I have Peyton up here. Really quick though, She's gonna keep playing, but I'm gonna share one thing before I read. I was, I was asking myself the question, because when you're planning on preaching an entire sermon on a genealogy, you kind of have to look yourself in the mirror and be like, am I really gonna do this? Like, cause like we could skip it and like we could like move on to something else. We got Noah in the next chapter. That's something that's a lot of people know about. But as I was thinking about it, as I was praying about it, I, I realized two things. Number one, one thing that we truly believe, it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable and it is useful to us. And so I really believe that every time we read the scripture, we are understanding and being locked into God's heart. And so even if there's parts that we don't quite understand why they're in there, it's a little bit confusing, it is us 
getting connected to God. And so it's so important for us to value the scripture. And number two, I don't think that as Christians, we should be intimidated by the passages of scripture that challenge us or that stretch us a little bit. Because we are like worshiping a God that is so much bigger than we are and so much more powerful than we are. And so when we come to him, like he's gonna stretch us in some places. He's gonna, it's gonna be, there's gonna be times when we have to think through something and it's gonna be a little bit more confusing sometimes than we think, but I don't think that should intimidate us. I think that should actually cause us to worship God and cause us to want to draw near to him. So here we go, we're gonna start Genesis chapter five. Are you there? Say, I'm there. Genesis chapter five, verse one, and it says this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. The whole Bible is the story of Jesus from beginning to end. And this chapter is no different. This chapter starts at Adam and takes us all the way to Noah. If you look at Genesis chapter 11 later, you'll see that there is actually another genealogy that leads from Noah all the way to Abraham. And then if you look at Matthew chapter one, Matthew chapter one goes Abraham all the way to Jesus. And so this is just painting the picture of saying, even from the very beginning, we see the bloodline that leads us to Jesus. Verse three, Adam lived 130 years and he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, hello, that is awesome. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Already, we are seeing this rhythm and this pattern that is happening. There are gonna be 10 generations listed in this chapter and each is gonna follow the same pattern except for two where the writer mixes it up a little bit. The pattern is here's a guy when he was this old, he had a son, then he had other sons and daughters, and then he lived this amount of time, and then after that, he died. Now he died, that kind of just seems obvious, you know, like every man dies. But what's interesting about this and what the writer wants us to realize is that this wasn't actually part of the plan. Man was created to live with God. Man was created to walk with God. But when the men and women and Adam and Eve sinned, when they fell, the curse was that they would die. And so even when Adam, when it says Adam died, this is the first person in human history who died of natural causes, or at least the first recorded one. And so what we're meant to realize here is this is tragic because this is the curse of sin. This is what darkness wants for people to die. And so this is what the scripture is discussing and saying that the curse of sin is real. Let's read verse nine. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. 
When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. Now I wanna share a quick pro tip with you. Some of you guys may be in a situation later in your life where you have to read a Bible passage and there is a name that is confusing. Here is what you do. When you reach a name that is confusing, you read it boldly, you read it quickly, and you read it like you've always known how to pronounce that name. Because the truth is, none of you guys actually know how to pronounce that name. But I was so confident, you all think it must be Mahalalel. So the truth is, whenever you read a name, nobody else knows. So just act like you do. Act like you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I've been to seminary. Like I know what name it is. All right, so here we go. Verse 15, when Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Okay, this is, this is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. And what I love is it is woven into this genealogy where sometimes we're just tempted to skim right through. But man, this is an incredible verse because first off, it says that Enoch walked with God. We're gonna talk about that a little later. But Enoch was actually so close with God that he didn't die. There's actually only two recorded people in the scripture that never die, Enoch and Elijah. And both of them were actually taken away by God. Like literally the picture here is that Enoch is so close with God and so intimate with God that one day, he just kind of was walking with God and he just kept walking and never came back. And that God actually was so close with him that this happened. There's a, a great theologian who passed away recently named Dallas Willard. And one of Dallas Willard's quotes was that he wanted to be so close with God and he wanted to be so aware of the presence of God in his life that when he got to heaven, he didn't even realize he died because he was just continuing his walk with God. Isn't that amazing, this picture that, man, someone could be that intimate with God that it takes you a few minutes to realize you're actually in heaven because you're like, man, I've been so aware of the presence of God the whole time. This is the picture that we get when Enoch walks with God. Verse 25, when Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah had lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. 
Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Methuselah has the distinction of being the oldest person to ever live. Now, some of you may be asking the question, okay, like, I don't know if you've noticed this, but all these ages are really old. Like way older, like nobody around here is like, yes, I am 900 years old. That's, that's a lot of years. Like that's even like beyond our comprehension, like 10 times older than we're used to living. So why is that, what, like what's, what's going on? Well, there are, are many theories as to why this happens, but it is very interesting to see that we're gonna learn next week about the great flood. And then there's a genealogy that I referenced in Genesis 11, and immediately after the, geneal- the, the, the great flood, the age of men like rapidly descend. Like it goes from like 900 to 400 to 200, and then very quickly we are at how you and I would normally expect a life expectancy to be, 100 years, 70 years. So people have asked the questions and even debated, is this just fictitious? Is this kind of just a um, kind of like something that the writers kind of threw in? Maybe they didn't even have an understanding of years to be able to understand how many years this actually was. But what I believe is, and uh, well, first off, first, we don't know, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to know why someone lived as long as they lived, but there's a really interesting thing that we can discover, and, and this could be true, I, I don't know, but I, I like to believe that it is. It's not gonna base our salvation one way or the other, but in Genesis chapter one, verse six and seven, it talks about the fact that when God created the, the heavens and the earth, he actually separated the waters from the waters. And he said, it says that he actually put waters above the heavens. Now, currently in our atmosphere, there is like a canopy of water vapor, but there's not like a ton of water. Like if all the water from our atmosphere fell, um, the earth would be covered about one inch deep in water. So like there's some up there, but there's not a ton up there. Not enough say for like a great worldwide flood, like what we're gonna learn about next week. And so what a lot of scholars believe is that there was before the flood, like way, way, way more water in the atmosphere. Now, if that were true, there's a couple things that were happening. Number one is that it would create kind of like a greenhouse effect on the earth and that all over the earth, the temperature would be like mid seventies all the time, which that would be like amazing, by the way, that would be awesome. Secondly, there wouldn't be any major like weather shifts or major storms or anything like that. In fact, there wouldn't be any rain at all because the the water vapor would kind of be like creating this very stable environment for the earth. And we read in Genesis chapter two that there actually was no rain on the earth until Noah. Thirdly, because there was so much water vapor in the atmosphere, it would actually block out a lot of the harmful UV rays and a lot of the harmful solar radiation that is happening on this earth, which would lead to longer life. Like you realize living is actually really bad for you. Like breathing and like uh, walking around is actually slowly killing you. I hate to break it to you. You should stop doing it because it's bad. So like the moment we're born, you know, like we're actually getting exposed to all these things that are slowly killing us, kind of depressing. But what we are understanding, at least the the theory that some, some scientists have is that before the flood, like 
This, this water vapor actually created this environment where people could live a lot longer. It was very temperate, it was very beautiful. And then after the flood, because all this water fell onto the earth, it was no longer in the atmosphere and therefore life expectancy dropped a lot. I think that's a very interesting fact. I thought it was a very interesting theory that I would share with you. And it's possible that it explains why Methuselah was 969 years old. All right, verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring relief from the work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech had lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And that, my friends, is the end of the first genealogy in the Bible. And also, sadly, it is the end of Peyton's playing on stage tonight, at least until the end. So let's give it up for Peyton. She did a phenomenal job leading us through the genealogy. Absolutely incredible. All right. Now, what I want you guys to do, because we got about eight more verses to read of the scripture, but I want you to turn to your neighbor and I want you to say, I wish this would get a little weirder. Say that. Good. I'm glad you said that because it's about to get a little weirder. Say it's about to get weird. All right, here we go. Verse one of chapter six. Don't run away too far. Verse one of chapter six, here we go. It says this, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, so if, if you're here for the first time, I just want to let you know, like, this is probably honestly like the most confusing passage in the Bible. So you picked a good night to come for your first time. But basically what this is saying is that there are these men called the sons of gods and they look at daughters uh, who are like women who live on the earth and they think, man, like these women are really attractive. And so they get married and they have kids and they have these kids called the Nephilim. And these kids are known as the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Like that is very exciting. And actually we learn in Numbers chapter 13 that the Nephilim were notorious for being giants. The Hebrew word Nephilim is like giants. So they're these like very tall people. And yes, I have been asked before if I'm a descendant of the Nephilim. Yes, it is hilarious every time. Thank you. It's just as funny as when an old person is like, you know, I can buy you some ripped or some jeans that don't have holes in them. Like, I get it. It's funny. Cool. Awesome. Just kidding, I love it. If you've ever said that to me, I'm not mad at you. We're, we're cool. 
So what does it mean, the sons of God and the daughters of men? Well, there are a few different theories for this, and I'm just going to share with you what uh, I believe to be the truth as I've studied the scripture. And I also want you to realize that this section is, is eight verses long. It is something that we don't have to like make or break our faith based on these four verses. But since it's here, I do want to be faithful to the text, and I want to explain to you what I think this means. So the sons of God, if we can, can we put that first verse, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 back up? The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as wives any they chose. So uh, the Hebrew word from the original text, the sons of God, is actually ha Elohim, which bene means sons and Elohim means God. This is found a couple of other times in the Bible, specifically in Job chapter 1, verse 6. It says this, There was a day when the sons of God, also the exact same Hebrew word, Beneha Elohim, came to present themselves before God, and Satan also came among them. Now, I know this is very weird. We're talking about angels. We're talking about spiritual beings right here. It's kind of a crazy thing, but here's what's happening. Basically, uh, the scriptures very much indicate that when God created the world, he had also created like a massive amount of angelic beings that are kind of there to be his servants and to worship him and to carry out deeds for him on planet Earth. About a third of these uh, beings, along with Satan, revolted and rebelled and kind of went against God. And so we learned in chapter 3 that Satan is a tempter, he's an accuser, he's the one who kind of persuaded Eve to walk away from God and persuaded Adam to walk away from God. So he has these other uh, angels who are with him. We find about these angels in a few other places, Matthew chapter 25 says that there is an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So there's these angels that are dedicated to the devil that one day God is going to destroy. In 2 Peter chapter 2, it says God did not spare angels when they sinned. And so, in fact, angels can sin. They have free will, and they can walk away from God just like anyone else. And so what's happening is that what I believe is what's happening is that these Angels are, have like rebelled against God. They've revolted. They've walked away from God. And they see women and they're like, these women are attractive. And so they, in an act of rebellion against God, take these women as their wives. And their offspring are these mighty men of valor. That's the explanation. If you ask me why did God put that in the Bible, on the one hand, I don't know why God put that in the Bible. On the other hand, I do think it's interesting because the G Genesis was actually originally written to the Israelites. And the Israelites were going to go in and conquer this land of Canaan. Now what's interesting is, one of the things that was known about this land of Canaan was that there were giants in this land. So what I believe to be true is that God is actually putting this in there to encourage the Israelites and to say like, look, I've taken care of these people before. And so you don't have to fear them. You don't have to worry about them. I know about them. I got you. So let's move forward. So that is the Nephilim. We've talked about the names and we've talked about the Nephilim. That's as weird as it's going to get tonight, I promise you. Now let's dive in verse 5. We're going to wrap up the chapter. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. 
And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So what we learn here is that God actually has emotion. God feels things. God deeply cares. And this verse really is where we get this idea of the series of myself the God. Man had completely rebelled and revolted against God. And man was literally saying like, you're not God anymore, I'm God. And because of that, God was so sad that he's like, look, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to hit the reset button here on humanity. Like, like this isn't working. This is not functioning the way I designed. But tonight we're gonna get left with one verse of hope And this verse of hope is going to be a cliffhanger to kind of bring us into next week. And that verse is 6-8, which says this, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I love that. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So, what can we learn from this passage? Like, there's, there's a lot of stuff we just covered. We covered a list of 13 names, 10 generations. We looked at some Nephilim, which is very interesting. We looked at the fact that the earth is like increasing in wickedness. As the population increases, so does the wickedness. So what can we learn? Well, I want you guys to jot down three things tonight as as we wrap up our evening. The first one is this. God knows your name. God knows your name. I think it is so significant that we read... 32 verses of names. We started with Adam and Seth and Enosh, and it went all the way to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, here's the thing. Back in the time that this was written, like, we did not have Office Depot to buy paper. We did not have Dunder Mifflin, okay? And so paper was extremely hard to come by, and so everything that you wrote had to be super significant. It wasn't like today when we are firing off texts and gifts and memes, literally like whatever. It's like, it's all good. Like, it's digital. Who cares? No, like everything was precious. And so they weren't going to write something unless it was absolutely essential for them to write. And so God chose to use up some of the precious parchment and paper that was on planet earth to be able to list and record these names. What I believe that we can take away from this is that God deeply values and cares about every single person. God starts in Genesis 1 and it's massive and it's huge. He has literally created the entire universe. But now Genesis 5, it is moved down to God actually knows the name of every single person on the planet. This is so beautiful. Earlier this year at Passion 2019, Louis Giglio, he preached a message. And in this message, he talked about two of the great challenges that our generation faced. And the first challenge was the challenge of broken homes. I don't know if you realize this, but the people in our generation are facing broken homes at a rate that literally no one else ever has in human history. Like the divorce rate, the single parent homes are sky high. 
Here's the thing. When that's happened, the byproduct, the thing that is the most devastated by that are the kids. Like whenever there's brokenness in the home, the kids are the ones that feel it more than anyone else. Because God designed the family to tell kids, because your parents love you, God loves you. It's supposed to point from the love of mom and dad up to God. And so when there's brokenness, the kids feel it the most. So when, you know, a family member, when, when your parents, like, get divorced, like, you take that on yourself and you think, like, man, like, maybe I'm the problem here. Maybe I'm the one who, who, who did something wrong. When, when your mom, you know, like, she, she accidentally got pregnant and it wasn't meant to happen, like, you subconsciously take on yourself, like, maybe I'm the mistake. Maybe I'm the one that shouldn't have even come around right now. When, when your dad is, like, so interested in the next relationship and the next fling that he can find, like, it's so easy to take upon yourself, man, I'm just not valuable. And... The broken home leads us as a generation to feel like an incredibly insignificant generation. The other thing that has happened is the cell phone. Now, there's a ton of amazing things about a cell phone. Like, I am so thankful for it. But what's interesting is every time we get on social media, there is an endless supply of pictures, posts, and comments informing us that there are a lot of people out there who are way better than us at everything. Like, no offense or anything, you know what I'm saying? Super exciting, super uplifting message. But like, for real, like, if you want to feel bad about yourself, there are plenty of people who will tell you how lowly you are compared to them. If you're, if you're excited about anything, there is someone out there who has done it 10 times better than you. If you're like, man, like I'm so excited about the date that, that my boyfriend took me on. Like there's someone whose boyfriend flew them to Paris for the day. And you're like, I just, I just went to Dell's Freeze. Like I was excited about it until then. You're like so excited. You're like just wanting to like sing a little song in the shower and the acoustics make the shower sound so good. And you're like, I think I'm a good singer. And then you get online and you hear someone just casually belting out this tune. And you're like, man, like, I'm actually a terrible singer compared to this. Like, this is awful. And so what has happened is that one of the side effects of social media is it leads us to feel insignificant. And so the broken home and, and the cell phone, it's all of these things that are telling our generation, like, you're not significant. You don't matter. And so what we do is we do one of two things. We either isolate ourselves, we remove ourselves completely because we can't handle the, the pain of that rejection, or we enter into competition mode. And we try to prove ourselves, and we say, I'm going to make something of myself. That way, I know that I matter. I'm going to show that person that said I'm not valuable how valuable I am. And the truth of it is both of those things are ultimately going to be destructive. Because what we need most of all 
And I really believe this is for someone to know who we are and for someone to love us. And the beauty of this genealogy is that God knows your name. Now, you might say, Brian, look, in this genealogy, this is a list of, like, some important people. They're in the line of Jesus. Like, I mean, there's 10 people that God knows, but does God really know me? I'm glad you asked because Acts chapter 17 answers that question. Acts 17, verse 16, excuse me, Acts 17, 26 says this, that God made from one man every nation of mankind. So right here, we actually see the story of Adam and Eve moving to expanding all over the earth. God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. And listen to this. God has determined and allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So God has planned out every single human being on this earth, where they are going to live and how long they are going to live. And this is the reason. The reason is that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he's actually not far from each one of us. So like, why, why, why were you born where you were born? Why were you born in the countryside of Montana. Maybe there's someone here who was born in the countryside of Montana. Why were you born there? Why did your parents move you to St. Louis when you were 12 years old? How did you end up here in Melbourne, Florida? The, the, the ultimate reason that God did this for you is that God wants you to seek after him. That God wants you to find him. So not only does God know your name, not only does God know your address, but there is a purpose for you, and that purpose is that you would seek after God. But what I absolutely love is that the purpose is not just that you would seek after God, but there is a promise attached to that purpose, and the promise is that God is actually not that far away. So whatever you're going through, whatever you're walking through, whatever baggage we're all carrying in here, the invitation from God is that not only does he know your name, not only does he want you to seek him in whatever situation and circumstances he's placed in your life, it is so you would seek him, but he is actually close to us, that he loves us and he's walking with us. So the first point that I want us to realize and recognize tonight is that God knows our names. Now, that's a little bit of a warm and fuzzy point, and I hope that you feel good about it. I will say, though, this next one might come a little harsh and come out of left field, but here we go. Point number two, we need to write this down and we need to realize this, is that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Brian, that's, that's, that's like anybody like getting whiplash right now. We started with like, God knows your name. Like, I love that point. That's awesome. Second point, judgment's coming. Bummer, huge bummer. Judgment is coming, but God is patient. See, we cannot escape from the reality that judgment's coming as we read this text. God looks out and he sees the world and he sees wickedness. And what he says is, this wickedness makes me sorry that I even created this thing. And I need to 
exact judgment. I need to pour out justice on the world. What is justice? The idea of justice is that God is a holy God. And because of that, whenever we sin against him, or whenever we sin against someone else, that sin has to be paid for. God's not going to let wickedness go unpunished. Now, judgment is not something that we like to talk about in 2019. This is not a popular subject. And honestly, sometimes it can conjure up images of like a preacher just screaming or someone standing on the side of the road with like a, 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 a sign that says like the end is near and we can kind of get a little bit woozy about this. But I want to be honest with you. Every single person in here believes in justice. Like you don't have to go too far to realize that you believe in justice. If your to-go order is messed up, you believe in justice. Because you're instantly angry, you're instantly furious, and you are dialing up, demanding a refund, and demanding an entirely new meal at some other point. Why? Because you paid for something you didn't get. And that's unjust. The, the other week, actually it was last week, I, I went to a car wash because it was love bug season and my car was covered in love bugs. So I go there and I, I'm lazy, so I'm like, I'm not getting out of my car. These love bugs are too gross. I'm going through the automatic wash. So I pull up, I swipe my card, and I pick the cheapest option. I'm like, the cheapest option will do, I'll get it out. So I pull up, you know how the whole thing's like advance, I advance, I park. The soap goes over my car, it comes back, then some other waxing agent goes over my car, comes back, and then all of a sudden, the water just starts spraying out right in front of my car. And it, it's not moving. So the only thing I can see, because my entire windshield and my whole rest of my car is covered in soap, the water's just pouring out, eventually it stops, and I'm like, is it coming? It's like moving, it's just there. And then the giant siren goes off, you know, like meh. And I still can't see, keep in mind. So I like open the door and it's like, car wash over, please pull forward. So I got robbed of $5 is what I'm selling you. And the other thing is like, I was like, so th this is the point when I realized I, I'm passionate about justice. I'm like, there will be justice, I will get my $5 back. And look, I mean like, I'm not one of those people who like, like I'm not the most saving penny pinching person. Like usually my attitude is like, ah, eh, it's five bucks, you know, like I don't even know if five bucks is gone. But if you steal five bucks from me, I'm getting it back, okay? And so I'm like, I'm dialing up this number. And like, I'm not like, you know, I'm not gonna use my platform up here to tell you which car wash it is. That would be like inappropriate powers. But I just wanna let you know, I really wanna tell you, okay? I really wanna put them on blast. Because their number was disconnected. So not only did they rob me, but they hid like cowards. <laughs> and I want justice, I really do. And I think we've all had a situation like that. We've all like watched the news and we've heard about someone who has committed a heinous crime and they're getting away with it. We've heard about someone who has 
committing human trafficking or sexual assault and they just get off with a slap on the wrist and we get so angry because justice is not being served. We want justice, but here's the thing. We want to be the ones who decide what's just and what's unjust. And the reality is none of us want to admit that we deserve justice. But we love the idea of picking and choosing who gets it. But the truth is that God is the most just. And the good news is that every evil deed is going to go punished. Now that's really exciting when we think about the Nazis committing genocide. It's like, that's awesome. I'm glad that some evil deeds are going punished. What's not exciting is when we think about the evil deeds that we have committed. That's a bummer. But the truth is, for everybody in here, our sins are going to go punished. Either A, they're going to be paid for by Jesus on the cross, or B, they're going to be paid for by us in hell. And so the invitation for all of us tonight and the grace and mercy of God for all of us tonight is that we would repent. And God actually wants us to literally just be like, look, I want to give my sins to Jesus. He has already paid for them. We only have to accept that free gift. So the first part is that justice is coming from God. But the second thing is that God is patient. God is insanely patient. In fact, even though God is a just God, the first thing that God wants us to know about him is that he is slow to anger, that he is quick to mercy, that he is slow to attack and to get patient. Some of us are thinking that God is just sitting up in heaven waiting to just shoot us down. No, his default heart posture towards us is slow to anger. You don't have to look any farther than Methuselah to understand this. This is a really beautiful story, but look at Methuselah. Methuselah is the oldest person in the world, 969 years old. His father is Enoch. Now, it says in the book of Jude chapter 1 that when Enoch lived, he was actually a preacher and that he proclaimed that one day God's judgment was coming. Now, here's what's really interesting. If you look at math, and you can actually do that, reading the scripture, you can line up when different people lived and when different people died. Enoch actually died the year that the flood happened. So 969 years, he died the year the flood happened. Now check this out. Many ancient and modern commentators, this is a commentator named Henry Morris who writes this. He says, many ancient and modern commentators have interpreted the name Methuselah as meaning when he dies, it shall be sent. If this suggestion is correct, and there is at least a possible basis for it, then a justifiable inference is that Enoch, the prophet of the coming judgment, had received at the time of the birth of his son a special revelation concerning the coming judgment of the great flood. However, God promised that it would not come as long as Methuselah lived, and Enoch gave him a name to commemorate that prophetic warning and promise. So Enoch's name literally says, when he dies, it shall be sent. Now, we don't know if that's true or not, but if it is true, what an interesting thing that the oldest man in the history of the world is actually emblematic that God's justice is coming. 
that God would actually allow someone to live longer than anyone else and that that person would be the person that is showing us that God's judgment is coming. That means that God is going to judge one day, but he's slow to it. His desire is that every single person would get saved. It says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God wants everybody to come to Jesus. The last thing that we're gonna learn tonight, if you wanna jot this down, this will be our final point. The greatest invitation in all the world is to walk with God. The greatest invitation in all the world is to walk with God. I love what it says in this genealogy. Because we learn that Adam lived. We learn that Mahalalel lived. We learn that Seth lived. We learn that Jared lived. But Enoch, Enoch walked with God. Every man lives, but not every man walks with God. And yet the invitation for all of us tonight is not just to know about God, not just to know God, but actually you and I, we have an invitation from God to walk with God. Not just one day in heaven, but we can get a chance to learn how to do that today. There's this amazing psalm that David wrote, and I'm going to ask the band to come up and help me close out this message. There's an amazing psalm that David wrote. It's one of my favorites. It's Psalm chapter 27. And in Psalm 27, David is writing, and he's saying that there's some, some pretty tough things happening to him. David was a king, and he says that in his kingdom, there is an army encamped against him. He says that there is a threat of war. In addition to that, he says that there are actually people who are like desiring to eat his flesh. There's like zombies coming after him. So this is like a bad scene, okay? But David has this really crazy thing that he prays to God. Look at what he says on Psalm 27, verse 4. This is right after David says, there's an army, there's war, there are guys looking to kill me. And then he says this. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This is actually, if you think about it, a very irresponsible prayer for David to pray. Like he has a lot of other things that he should be worried about right now besides being in God's temple. Like he should be praying about like having wisdom to like figure out a battle plan. He should be praying about courage to go out and fight. He should be praying about like not being afraid that all these people are coming to him. But he doesn't pray that. He prays this other crazy prayer. The prayer that he prays is, I'm only asking God for one thing. And the thing that I am asking God right now in this moment is that I would be with God. That he actually just wants to be in the presence of God. One thing I have asked of the Lord, this is what I want. 
I want to be with God. Now, here's the crazy thing, because this is the invitation that all of us get to ask God for ourselves. We literally get to ask God, and God is inviting us to walk with him every single day. And here's the crazy thing, like, like how, do, how do you invite him? How do you ask God to walk with you? How do we walk with God? Well, there's a couple ways. Number one, we build daily routines into our lives that point us back to God. So we spend time every day in the word of God, reading and drawing near to him. We spend time every day praying. We spend time in silence, just reflecting on who God is and opening up our ears to listen to God. These routines, they're not the things that God is gonna like use to save us. Jesus already has saved us, but these routines are opportunities for us every day to reconnect with God. And some days it's gonna be great and super easy. Some days you're not gonna feel like it. But we build in the routines because we wanna create avenues and channels for us to connect with God. The other thing that we do is we have moments. We have moments like worship. We have moments where we're just walking around or driving in the car and all of a sudden God speaks something to us and he allows us to draw near to him. But I was thinking about this the other day, you know, because in, in the book of Matthew chapter six, Jesus talks and he has this really beautiful thing. He starts talking about prayer and he starts talking about fasting and he starts talking about giving. And what he says is, look, when you pray, don't tell everybody about it. Like, don't brag about it. Don't go talking about how awesome it is. Don't try to pray in such a way that you're, everyone's looking at you and talking about how awesome your prayer is. He says, just pray to your father in secret. And your father who is in secret will reward you. And I don't think that God is trying to get us to just be like, super like covert with our prayer life because like he's wanting like to keep us from having a good time or something like that. Like God is trying to keep us in a place where we are receiving a reward from him. It says that your father in heaven will reward you for being in secret with God. God wants there to be a portion of your heart that's just between you and him, that is so close and so intimate that only you and him know about it. You know, there, there's, there's this saying or this phrase that we had. The phrase is, you had to be there. Have you ever had an experience like that where you have this epic and awesome experience and you're like, man, that was so good, and you go to tell somebody else because you just want someone else to know about it and they just don't get it? You're like, dude, I just saw the like most incredible show. Like it was, it was insane. And, and, and you start telling them and you're like, my favorite song came on and I was just like going nuts and it was awesome. And their face is just blank. They're like, okay, great. And you re you're like, you had to be there. Or you're like, man, like, like this meal last night, we were eating this meal, we were at this restaurant, we were all laughing. Bob said this joke and, and you tell the joke and everyone was laughing and then the person's like, I don't, I don't get the joke. And you're like, oh yeah, you had to be there. And I think what God is saying to us when it comes to walking with him is like, you can't hear about it secondhand from somebody else. You can't just tell somebody about it and they're gonna get it. You had to be there yourself. But the invitation is 
that we get to walk with God. And so let me encourage you that if you don't have a time where you are carving out time during your day to be with God through scripture and through prayer, do it. But right now in this moment, we're gonna have an opportunity to walk with God, to draw near to God in our hearts, to listen to him, speak to us, and to sing out praises to him. But first, I just wanna invite every single person here, if you would, to bow your heads, to close your eyes, because I wanna give people an opportunity to actually receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. As we said, God will judge sin. He will punish sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so God wants to give you an opportunity to have your sins forgiven, to have a brand new start, a brand new life, and to walk with him. So if that's you and you would say, look, I've walked away from God. I am not close with God. I don't really honestly know God. God has already made a way for you to have a completely new life, to be made completely new through Christ. So I wanna invite you to do is, when I give you an opportunity, I just wanna ask you to raise your hand up in the air. And I wanna ask you to raise your hand. Your raising of your hand is not going to save you, but you are just doing this as an outward demonstration of what God is already doing in your heart. So if that's you and you would say, Brian, I wanna get saved. I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. Would you just raise your hand right now? We just lift your hand in the air so I can see it, and most importantly, so that God can see it. That's awesome, amazing, thank you so much. Seeing some hands going up all over, incredible, incredible. All right, for those of you guys who raised your hands, I just wanna invite you to pray a simple prayer. Put it in your own words, pray it from your heart, but pray something like this. Pray, dear God, thank you for saving me. I'm sorry that I have walked away from you. I'm sorry that I have sinned, but thank you for sending Jesus to be the Lord of my life. Thank you for sending Jesus to save me and to forgive me of my sins. Now I am a new creation. I will follow you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks so much for spending time with us. If you'd like to know more about The Harbor, please follow us on Instagram at wearetheharbor. Also, if you need prayer, feel free to send us a DM. Otherwise, tune in next time.